If there's ever a time where we needed to pull together as believers of Christ and, and unite and try to strengthen and make the world a better place, it's now. Mm-hmm. And that, that sounds like he's yeah. preaching our message. <laughs> there's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope. The realities of the faith, the ra- realities that unify us are already there. Christ praying for unity. What should we be praying for? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the one prayer request of Jesus. Think about it in the Bible that we actually have a say in whether or not it comes to fruition or not. I think in what God has done in you guys in uh, in this podcast and the, the multitude of folks that you're reaching, the diversity, whatever God intended when he's, when you started this, he's able to bring it to completion. Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, here with the one and only other co-host, TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Hello, thank you. Yeah, and uh, we are also joined by two extraordinarily special guests to me, at least, um, and hopefully to all of you listening, um, Professors uh, Dr. Peter Beck and Dr. Pete Link, and uh, they've both been on the show before. Um, if you go all the way back to episode 11 was their first appearance, and they were also on episode 50, so uh, they like to spread it out real well, because, um, you know, they're extra special that way. <laughs> um, Which episode we're going to be this? <laughs> this uh, I think is ninety eight. Okay, I just seen how we're yeah. spaced out here. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's pretty good spacing. Forty ish episodes, you know. <laughs> so y'all, one hundred and thirties, y'all should expect them back. Um, <laughs> uh, today we're going to be talking about the Book of Genesis. Um, kind of getting a more traditional, uh, strong view on that and why it matters to the faith. Um, you know, arguments about Genesis come up a lot. So hopefully this will be a strong foundational episode. Um, just reviewing some audience engagement, uh, on Facebook, when we asked who would win in a fight, the tortoise or the hare, it was like five, zero, everyone agreed the tortoise on Instagram. Somehow the hare won. And that really bothers me because on the show, it was unanimous on Facebook. It was unanimous. The tortoise would win Instagram followers. You are wrong. And I am sorry. I That's have true. no informed opinion to offer here. <laughs> That's uh, I do, but I'm going to continue on with the current show. Uh, and move on to uh, this week's silly question. Uh, if you could pick any superhero to be your personal secretary, uh, which one would you choose? Who would you choose? Uh, and Josh and I will go first. I'll go first. Uh, just because I feel like I have a, a pretty good answer and I don't want anyone else to say it first. Uh, I would pick I would pick the Flash as my personal secretary because hmm. you cannot overwork the Flash. He's going to get everything done in a timely manner, even if he waits till the last second, because that second is uh, infinite seconds for him. So, uh, you know, I just feel like I'd, I'd be pretty good hands if my secretary was the Flash. What about you, Josh? All right. Um. You know, I, I feel the need to be honest because uh, Dr. Beck and Dr. Link have both taught me in school and they would call me out if I chose a responsible answer here. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Cyborg from the original Teen Titans because I know we would get absolutely nothing done but have a great time. Yeah. So when you enough. say the original, you mean the comic books and not the movies, right? Oh, I meant the original show. The comic yeah. books. The original show. Okay. I don't know yeah. if I read the original Teen Titan comic books. I read some of their comic books. I don't know. They were DC's answer to X-Men making a lot of money. That's a decent answer. Pretty good answer, though. Yeah. 
But uh, so my my uh, my secretary uh, just is still a little bit from TJ, but it, but in a better universe would be Quicksilver for the same reason. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, of course, now I have two Quicksilvers to choose from, um, and we're not sure which one will end up in the MCU. But all that to say, um, assuming he's not dead, he'd be a great right. secretary. I mean, if you, yeah. it just depends because, you know, the the Flash is faster than Quicksilver, unfortunately. Uh, but Quicksilver is definitely cooler. That's a good answer. Uh, so, Dr. Beck. I'm nowhere near that cool. Mine's much more contemplative. Mine would be the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Just think about it. You wouldn't like to see me angry. And so instead, you get to see him. I come off as the good cop, no matter how bad it goes. <laughs> yeah, That's I'm almost definitely true. Yeah, I mean, as That's long as you're solid. willing to do all of your own paperwork, I feel like that just shouldn't be an issue. He's more of a bodyguard yeah. or kind of a bouncer than anything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you get Bruce Banner, you just make him mad when he needs to be mad. Exactly. Go out yeah. and kick him in his shins once in a while and get out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce is a pretty Perfect. smart guy. I think he'd be able to handle it. Perfect answers, everybody. <laughs> All right. So that being said, uh, let, let's get to to the real stuff. Um, somehow we have had you both on twice and have not asked about your testimonies. And it's one thing we like to talk about on this show because we found it really good for your church unity to just kind of hear people's stories and say, "Hey, they know the same Christ that I know." Um. Would you guys uh would you guys mind sharing just like a snapshot of your story coming to know Christ? Well, mine is probably as much my mother's testimony as my own. My mother was a uh, how do I put this politely? I guess I don't need to worry because she'll never watch this podcast. My mother was a hellion growing up. You know, she hung with Hell's Angels as a teenager. There were multiple children conceived out of wedlock. And so while she was a good person in her 20s, she wasn't a churchgoer. She didn't grow up with it. And then one day when I was either in the fifth or sixth grade, she woke me up one Sunday morning and said, we're going to church this morning. Out of the clear blue, nothing preceded that I'm aware of. And within two weeks, she made a profession of faith. We, she joined a church. Within a year, I was at a revival meeting at our church, a little storefront. What back then was called a church mission. Now we call it a church plant. <laughs> led to Christ by a missionary to a closed country in the Middle East. And my mother and I were baptized on the same day about three weeks later. And so by saving the one miraculously, sovereignly, it then worked out that I made a profession of faith and then eventually my sister did as well. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, I, um, you know, we'll get to this a little bit later, but that, that does at least make you wonder about the doctrine of the elect. I mean, <laughs> that's a, uh, that's one story, man. Um, Dr. Link, how about you? How did um, how did you come to know Christ? So I was actually raised in a, in, a, in a wonderful home, but it was not a Christian home. Now, we went to church, uh, but it was about an hour and a half of uh, commitment, and then we were done. Uh, when I was 16, I decided, uh, no way, I, I, and I became an atheist. Um, and I decided to go chase my dreams. About that time that happened, my mother became, uh, was going through a series of illnesses that would continue for the rest of her life because I was the oldest boy. I had three younger sisters. They said, go chase your dreams. I wanted to make movies. Um, and so I started to work on that. It was a total disaster. Uh, I'll cut to the chase. And about the, When I was trying to rebuild my life, I realized that atheism didn't work. Uh, I had 
tried agnosticism. That wasn't working much better. And then I uh, started going back to the church I was raised in. And I, I knew when to sit, kneel, and stand. And I tried to read the Bible. I was 30 years old, trying to rebuild my, my career and life after all that. But none of the Bible made sense to me. And then in um, the ending of uh, 1998, my mother uh, died. Uh, she died, and I realized that those 15 years that I had spent chasing my dreams were times I should have been spending uh, taking care of her. And for the first time in my life, I realized I had a sin I couldn't really uh, do anything about. She was gone. So uh, friends who had reached out to me, I, I called them up. And I said, I want to go to church with you guys because I knew two things about these folks. Unlike me, they knew the Bible. And unlike me, they were actually genuinely kind to each other. Like you got together for a family and they were like encouraging each other. So I, that's strange, but I like it. So uh, they drove across the state of Texas for the graveside. And, and, and when my mother died, and so I called up uh, David on the uh, first weekend of January of 1999. He said, I want to go to church with you guys. And uh, he said, uh, great. We have Bible study and worship. I said, Bible study? That's for kids, right? All right, I'll go. So I went to the church I was raised in at 7, and then I met those guys and went to a Bible study at 9 a.m., and I had never seen grown men actually pray, not like pray at a football game or a meal, but actually pray, and I was floored by it. There's about 20 guys who were 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than me, and I just, they started opening the Bible, and I'd spent that last year trying to read the Bible, and none of it made sense to me, but when, when the gentleman who became my friend later, Bob, got up to teach, oh my goodness, it made sense. I believe, in fact, I believe the lesson was in Proverbs. And I went downstairs, and I, I heard a gentleman, David Leno, preach a 45-minute sermon that was all from the Bible, and I had never seen anything like that in my life, and my heart was just like, oh my goodness. I only knew like five to 10 minute sermons that were basically be nice to your sister or don't kick dogs uh, or was the other way around. I don't remember. Uh, and, and, but this was the Bible. I mean, you had to keep your Bible open following. I was floored. And, and for the next few weeks, every time that church was open, I was just, I was going there and I was reading. And I remember in the beginning of February of 99, I, I said, uh, I need to give my life to the Lord. I realized that he had died for me and, and I couldn't fix that sin that had happened before, but Christ had. And so I surrendered my life to him later in that month. I was baptized and I just poured myself into the scriptures. And about a year and a half later, I was in Ethiopia on my first mission trip. And then a second mission trip uh, later that year. And uh, it was, it was wonderful. Um, and I realized I was called to ministry and that's eventually many years later, um, how I ended up uh, serving in the capacity I have now. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah. It's really so, interesting. Both of your stories had to do with, your mother's uh, this would have been a great mother's day episode it turns out <laughs> yeah. yeah that's really cool so occasionally uh on the show we do something called the speed round segment uh i don't think we did it with you guys the first time and uh, you know we've kind of fallen in and out of love with the segment and over the re whatever <laughs> it's got its own history uh, yeah it comes in spurts you've both proven in times past to be champions of summarizing your thoughts and uh, for those of you who don't know what we're referring to, we mean the too long didn't listen. Uh, they are just too good at it. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, we wanted to make this a little bit more interesting. Uh, for each question we ask, we wanted to see who can answer with the fewest words spent. I will count the points as we go. Uh, you'll get extra points for thorough answers if they're under a sentence long. And we'll see who goes out, who comes out on top. And uh, the answers will be alternating. So. One of you will go first for each one. 
So the first question is, who is God? And I'm going to make Dr. Beck go first. Ah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> King. Yeah. Mm. All right. All right. So. Uh, <laughs> well, Lord, I win. I know Dr. Lee can't match that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he knows that I'm all testing, guys. So my answer is going to be, I am who I am. So there you go. All right. Who wins right. that one? But that, that so, was a real thorough answer, though. I was <laughs> depending on mm. who's teaching what it means, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, question two: Who is or what is the gospel, uh, Doctor Link? We got to do this shortly, so let me uh, do this very quickly. Manson. Christ uh, came, Christ died, Christ rose, so that we can rise and live with God. Okay, okay. Uh, Dr. Beck, uh, what is the gospel? I would say it's the good news of God's grace towards undeserving sinners through Christ in faith. Hmm, okay. I had shorter sentences, but he had a much shorter answer. Yeah, <laughs> I think we'd have to argue over thoroughness. I make my students write the gospel out of one of my classes, and I give them initially 15 minutes to use as many words as they need. Then I make them throw it away. I give them five minutes. How can you pare it down? And then I give them one paragraph, throw it away, and then one sentence. You know, mm. With the goal being, if you can't explain the gospel in an elevator, you know, on, in between first floor and 20th floor, Maybe you don't know the gospel well enough yet to share it. So I go through this drill in one form or other every semester with my um, unlucky students. Right. <laughs> Might yeah, be a bit sure of an unfair advantage. He just copied it. <laughs> uh, all right. Question three. Uh, what are your beliefs on the resurrection of the saints in Revelation, Dr. Beck? You're going to need to be a little more specific on that one. Me and Dr. Link were debating at lunch. Exactly what are we talking about? My answer is so, yes. I, I got a one word answer. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. You can both say yes. Uh, I think we'll allow that. Okay, then I, I, I second that. Right. Pre mid or post? <laughs> yes. All right. All right. <laughs> All right question four uh, What do you believe about the doctrine of the elect, Dr. Link? Uh, Trying to cut this stuff down is, of course, the impossible part. Uh, so being a biblical studies teacher, I never talked about doctrine anyway, right? I leave that to Dr. Beck. But uh, <laughs> what do I think about the doctrine life? Let's reduce this down. Is um, the work of God will accomplish God's goal in the lives of God's people. Okay. All right. Uh, Dr. Beck, uh, what do you believe about the doctrine of the elect? I think it's evidence of the king's sovereign mercy extended to those who are unworthy in any way. I'm, I've intertwined the two with kind of my definition of the gospel in a sense. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Calculations here to, for thoroughness. I think uh, he's a bit more robust than I was. I feel like that. <laughs> all right. Uh, what was the order of creation, Dr. Beck? Again, we arm wrestled. What do you guys mean? We're going to both cop out and say Genesis chapter one. It was day one, day two, day three, four, five, and six. Fair enough. Uh, the next question, though, uh, what is its significance, Doctor Link? 
the significance of creation, mm -hmm. but the way God created is the way God saves. The doctrine mm -hmm. of creation teaches us that God, as he created by his word and spirit, saves by his word and spirit, which is why Paul, of course, calls it a uh, salvation, a new creation. It's not just a random term. It's a significant pattern in the Pentateuch uh, that then gets drawn out elsewhere. All right. Uh, Dr. Beck, uh, can you tell us uh, what is the significance of the order of creation? Again, I read Genesis 1 as a display of God's sovereign majesty and that everything there is to prove that he is God and no one else can be. All right. Uh, next question. How old is the earth, Dr. Beck? I refuse to give an answer in terms of numerical value. I would suggest that it's older than some think and not as old as others. All right. Uh, the, but I understand our reason for giving a mediating answer is because there's the core question, does the Bible give a precise number of years? And uh, what I would suggest, go read uh, John Selhammer's book, uh, not that Dr. Beck would read it, but uh, Genesis Unbound. Um, and uh, I don't care whether you're a young earth or old earth. I just want to, we just want to care that you're spending time in the text and you're taking it seriously. And that is, it's not just a game. It's a, it's, it's a real description of what really happened. Um, and within that, once you, once you, you have that commit thing committed, you're going to have some who are going to be what we call a classic old earth, at least from our modern perspective. It's actually a modern view. And then you'd have others who have all sorts of views. Uh, but uh, stick to the text, and we're going to be okay with that. But I think the way Dr. Beck framed, Beck framed it is really good because uh, it's probably not quite where most people put it, somewhere in the middle. And does the Bible actually answer that question directly? My, my short answer is no. It does not answer that directly. All right. Uh, for those who are curious to delve deeper into the topic, we did do an episode about this. Uh, so go check that out uh, or just Google it. You get a lot of answers. Uh, next question. Uh, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6-2, Dr. Link? <laughs> so the problem with reading Genesis 6-1-4 is most people read it as an introduction to the flood story when it actually what it is, it's commentary on the genealogy that precedes it. And it's not creating two distinct lines. It's showing that even when you do good, you turn around and through all uh, death continues to spread. And so they're just... They're just men. The sons of God are men. Even when you walk with God as a man, you turn around and you still stumble and struggle. And, and the marriage becomes one of the ways that Genesis grabs a hold of that. All right. Uh, Dr. Beck, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6-2? I build off of what Dr. Link said. My approach is probably one that he's very well familiar with. I tend to take that they are people, humans, who represent people in power and authority, who are abusing their position to abuse the sons or the daughters, that is, of men. And so these are not fallen angels, but just people in great power who abuse their power. Yeah, it's good to be the king. Right? Exactly. Yeah, so that, I mean, I think that's a very credible answer. Remember the other ones, this, you can, you can many in church history have said the Nephilim are these fallen demons. Okay, sure. But what's the point of the passage? Not for you to know precisely what that is, but how it's helping you connect the spreading of Adam's sin to the world that's going to be judged, in particular, what's going on within the genealogy where two people don't die All in right. the genealogy. Right. Uh, last question. 
How could the existence of aliens impact our beliefs in Genesis and the gospel, Dr. Beck? Billy Graham once answered this years ago, back when there was a really popular discussion in the 70s, <laughs> like Chariots of Gods was a you know, popular book and movie, you know, very secular approach to it. But his argument was, if we believe in a God who can create the universe out of nothing, we can believe in a God who's created other beings in other parts of the universe. To me, I don't know that we'll ever find such aliens. But flip side, again, I believe in a God who can do whatever he desires, so long as it's in accord with his will and nature. And if there are other beings out there that are sentient, so be it. But what we do know from Scripture is Christ came to this planet to die for this people because we're the ones created in the image of God. All right. Dr. Link. Yes. So I know there's a lot of buzz about those uh, things that, that the Air Force and NASA, everybody released, everybody <laughs> NASA. Um, in short, I don't believe they're aliens. Uh, but let's say I'm wrong. Uh, I would just affirm what Dr. Beck said. Um, humanity is made in God's image. It is humanity that reflects that. So if there's something else out there, you know, I don't know that we have a precise answer we can give, but I wouldn't lose an ounce of sleep over it. One of the classes I took in my undergraduate was called a science class called the Search for Extraterrestrial Life. And what basically all the factors it would take for carbon-based life, you factor all those things together. And even in an infinite universe, the chance of it is so incredibly small to be anywhere else. And then you add to the fact the great distance that if there is other life out there, if they will be listening for us and we would be listening for them and nobody would be talking. All right. So you're not going to find it. <laughs> right. And if you would like to hear more about that specific uh, train of thought, head on over to our Patreon. I'll talk about that for a couple of hours and then upload it uh, because I could. All right. Because because I could. I um. <laughs> so who won? So, you know, I hate to do this, but the points for thoroughness were connected to doing it in one sentence. Uh, so a lot of the thoroughness points, I I would give the edge to Dr. Beck. However, yes. so, however, some of his explanations were not less than a sentence, even though one of them was just a word. Uh, I would have to call it a tie. I will not. I will not stop Doctor Link from relinquishing his part of the victory, though. I reject your version of reality and insert my own. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you need the reality. I, I will give a concession speech if it helps. Right. Prematurely or otherwise. That's right. Right. <laughs> All um, right. So it's open to interpretation. Fun stuff. Uh, but for the aliens thing, you should also, listener, read C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. His version of space and aliens are absolutely not true. It's impossible. However, it does do a lot of interesting pondering on what if there were aliens. Good books. But, you know, but, yeah, that's not what this episode's about. <laughs> um, all right. So um, I'll let you guys decide who wants to answer first or if y'all just want to build on each other. Um, but on to more of the meteor questions about Genesis. Uh, well, first, um, how, how do you guys read Genesis 1 through 12. Is, is it literal? Does it matter if it's literal? Uh, what, what's going on with that? So I would contend that literal meaning derives from 
the author's intended meaning. And that helps you solve a lot of, of problems that some people might have. And so is it literal? Yes. Is it describing things accurately? Yes. Can you trust? Why does it matter? First off, Genesis is the first part of one book called the Torah. You cannot understand anything uh, without connecting each part of the Torah to the other parts. Dr. Beck's preaching through Exodus. He'll tell you the first seven verses of Exodus do nothing but reference Genesis. Genesis 15 does nothing but tell you what's going to happen in Exodus. Well, so does Genesis 12. But, but my, my point is, is that it's all fit together. It all matters. And what happens is, in Genesis 1 through 11 in particular, you put into motion a comparison between Adam's story and Israel's story. Adam approaches or has, is in a land with God where God dwells. And for one sin, he sent him to exile. When you get to the middle of Exodus, you see Israel approach God at Mount Sinai, and they're unable to go in his presence. And the laws, just as a law couldn't hold Adam close, uh, the laws will not be able to keep Israel close. And so Genesis sets that into motion. And then it also sets up the other great comparison, which is, all right, we know that we've been cut off from God. We're in this exile. How do we then approach God? And when you move from Genesis 12 on, you begin to have this comparison between a Abraham, who's able to take his son, his only one, the one whom he loves, on top of a mountain where God himself is going to be, or God's messenger will be present. And in the presence of God, his son will die, but yet he knows he will live. Israel, of course, is called to bring, or Moses is called to bring Israel on the mountain, Exodus 3.12. Y'all will serve God on the mountain, Exodus 19.13. When the trumpets blast, they will go on the mountain. But of course, Moses isn't able to do that. And so we're waiting for a prophet like Moses who can do what Moses couldn't do. And all those comparisons where we see man's problem, our inability to stay near God, and the hope of how do we approach God? And we see it happening in Abraham's story, and we wonder, can God do that in our own hearts? That's what the Torah sets up. And so Genesis 1 through 11 in particular help us to recognize that all nations are meant to be involved in this story because the way God treated Israel is a preview of how God will treat all nations. Very robust answer. Thank you, Dr. Link. Uh, Dr. Beck, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Or His answer was so good, I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, which is good, because I have a, <laughs> a follow-up. I'll, I'll throw it to Dr. Beck first, then. Um, <laughs> uh, we were asking if Genesis 1 through 12 was literal, and the intended meaning is what literal is, of course, and um, that's, that's sort of what uh, Dr. Link was going on about and explaining how it relates to the gospel even. I, I think that's where he, he was getting with that. Um, is it historical, though? Is Genesis 1 through 12 a historical narrative? And does, does it mean, does it even matter? Yes and yes. I think that's how okay. the entirety of the rest of Scripture reads the accounts of Genesis 1 through 11, that Jesus and them don't use them as an allegory of, you know, just as so-and-so was, I am, or... No, I think the rest of the Bible reads the creation account and the early human accounts as literal events. And I think we're to read them that way. That's why every church I've pastored, and I'm now on my third, if you will, full-time pastor, even though I only serve part-time, but every church I've pastored, I've spent extensive time at the beginning of my ministry there teaching through at least Genesis 1 through 11, if not the entire book, to show my people and to gauge from them where they're at, that if we don't get 
Genesis 1 through 11 correctly, we're going to actually misinterpret the rest of Scripture in light of that. It's going to determine if we are, to put labels on us, moderate or progressive, if we're going to be symbolic, if Adam was a real human or just symbolic of all humans. And so I think it is foundational for the way you read the rest of Scripture. If not, was Jesus confused about the Genesis accounts? Did he get it wrong? And if he didn't get it wrong, which I don't think anybody would want to argue he did (laughs) believe Scripture, if he didn't get it wrong, why was he seemingly suggesting he was reading it literally? Why wasn't he more clear in his explanation that we should read it in some other fashion? So I think the answer is it is important that it is a literal story, though not necessarily specific in details. But it begins by telling us who God is, explains to us what we were created to be, explains what our problem is now and what our only hope can be. If you change that, you change the tenor of the rest of the biblical meta narrative. And so if you don't get the beginning of the movie correct, the sequels will never make sense years from now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that's pretty true. Um, so so and to go to that question, because people are asking about not only Genesis 1 about being literal, but if you want to see a poetic interpretation of the literal events of Genesis, you look at Psalm 33, verse 6. And so he, in other words, it has to be literal because of, uh, histor- and historical is a word that you use there, it has to be historical because of the way it's enveloped into the book. You have four genres at work, basically, in the in the Torah. You have narrative, you have poetry, you have genealogies, you have law codes. The last two put you to sleep, but the, the narrative is what holds you holds so much of it together. And um, I mean, it's if you read the Hebrew, it's it's clearly written uh, with a bunch of ayat poles and so forth that tell you that this is a narrative. And so you can't just go in and willy nilly ignore uh, what the language there is and just decide, well, this must be this must be not not uh, not literal because I can't make sense of it. That's a terrible way to approach scripture. That's to put yourself over scripture. You've got to submit yourself to scripture and spend time looking at it. And one of the ways you work through it, of course, is recognizing uh, that it's all connected together. And you can see in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, I think most people will say it's an anticipation of the Abrahamic covenant that you begin a discussion of in uh, Genesis 12 or Genesis 11, 27 and on. Um, but it's also an anticipation of what's going to happen at Mount Sinai. And that really becomes helpful because the author is choosing to describe these things so that the parts of the Pentateuch that are difficult, he includes other things to clarify and help draw those together to say, do you remember when, for example, you saw a bunch of polygamy? And you keep reading, of course, in Leviticus 18 and 20, he clarifies, don't do that. And it's like you're rereading Genesis, but now you're seeing it as a law code. So that when you have this tension where you feel like, I can't believe this actually happened. Just relax, read the text, look at how the other parts of the Torah read the text. And you'll find that the author is going to, over time, as you continue to read and keep reading, will clarify you for you, make the main thing the main thing. But you can, you've got to start from a posture of trust a hermeneutic of trust, if you're going to be able to actually enjoy the message of the book. And I think that's what enables us uh, to go into the text and and not only take it literally, not only say that all these events happen, but to look at how the author connects the things to not only learn, not only learn what happened, but most importantly, to learn what it means. Because he doesn't just tell you what happened. 
is always telling you what it means. And that's the lesson where the church can give life not only for what was, but what is and what will be. Okay. Interesting. Um, now, I, I do want to clarify because I just kind of assumed what you were say, saying earlier and um, <laughs> I want to make sure I did get that right. What you were saying is that these stories paint the need for Christ later on. And that's what you were talking about with the narratives with um, Moses. More and than Adam just and need. But yeah, so it's more than just need. The, the actual communication of the gospels at work. Don't think of the Torah as foundational preparation for the gospel. Think of it as proclamation of the gospel. Everybody knows about Genesis 3.15. We call that the Proto-Evangelion. And of course, yes, a few people like Calvin said, that can't be, that's just got to, he's getting that from rabbis who were, who were following an interpreted under, an interpretive method called the Peshat, a literal meaning that's very stripped down to de-evangelize Jewish people in, in the uh, uh, medieval period. But even in the first word of the Bible, the first word of the Bible, we translate in the beginning. Did you know it can also be translated by wisdom or by the firstborn? So Targum Neophyte, an ancient commentary on Genesis 1-1, shows us that while we want to translate it in the beginning, that this conversation about what Genesis 1-1's first word is runs... Uh, shows us interpretations that predate the New Testament. It says, in the beginning, by wisdom, by the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. Suddenly you can hear Colossians. Suddenly you hear the book of Proverbs. And, and what you realize is that the rest of the Bible, including the rest of the Torah, keeps talking about the Torah. Because when Jesus, I'll just, I'll just paraphrase my mentor, uh, John Selhammer. When Jesus talked about who he was and what he would do, all he needed was the Torah. Now, that's that's easier said than done and it takes a lifetime of reading and thinking about it and then you still have to do it within um what the church has said and will always say about the scriptures but uh, i would encourage folks that not only must you take it as literal in terms of history which it is you need to also be asking what is the message what is the lesson that's being passed on and what you'll find is that there's only one hope and that the way god created is the way he saves as i mentioned before by his word and by his spirit. Yeah. See, that's real powerful stuff. Even the very first word, man. Um, so I, I, what I'm hearing from both of you is that it is historical. It's concrete to, um, what do we say, orthodox theology. Um, and the whole Bible is kind of intertwined. Um, and, and I think you see that the more you dig, the more you see how it's connected. No matter which part of the Bible you're reading, it's connected to the rest. Um, which begs the question, and, and I'll let, uh, I'll let Dr. Beck go first with this one. If that's true, then what can we disagree about with Genesis one through 11? I mean, do we all have to believe the exact same thing to get doctrine right? Or is there any room for disagreement? Right. Yeah. The challenge here, and you know, we could go back to John Wesley and George Whitfield who disagreed over a soteriological issue. You know, they disagreed over predestination and election versus human responsibility and free will. Wesley once wrote to Whitfield and said, on this matter, we'll just have to agree to disagree. But of course, they were talking about an issue of not of salvation in terms of how is it achieved by Christ's work on the cross is our substitutionary atonement. The irony is eventually Wesley refused to agree to disagree and essentially disfellowshipped himself from Whitfield. Same struggle we have in with Genesis 1 through 11 or other, you know, biblical texts and maybe the miracles or other such things. You know, oftentimes the argument is, no, we can't 
agree to disagree. And thus, you know, we have people who will disfellowship, excommunicate somebody over age of the earth. You know, I've had somebody once accuse me in a church I pastored, well, how can you say you believe the Bible if you don't believe X? And, you know, I tried to gently point out to him, this is an interpretive issue in some cases. I think what you've got to do is be, as Romans 12, 2 says us, you know, be renewed or transformed by the renewal of our mind so that we can discern. And part of what we lost the ability to do in recent years is learn how to listen to what people are saying and discern how to ask, as you all do a really good job at, asking well-informed, pointed questions. I hear you saying, do you mean? And so, for example, I think Christians can fellowship one another, sit next to each other in church, worship on a Sunday morning, and one be a literal young earth, you know, bishop usher. It's 6,000 plus years old. And another one can be an older earth, that it's a symbolic representation, that there's a theological meaning to Genesis 1. I think we can do that, and I think we ought to do those sort of things. Right. What we've got to drive at the heart of the matter is, when you interpret Genesis 1 through 11 differently than me, why do you do that? And do you understand the implications of what you're arguing? And very often what happens is the people don't understand the implications. And what begins slowly is what you know Spurgeon called, or actually didn't call, he borrowed it from somebody else, but referred to as the downgrade controversy in the 1880s. It's not that the person he was arguing with intended to go there, but once you open Pandora's box, once you let the cat out of the box, sometimes maybe you don't go there, but your student, your disciple does. And we see that repeatedly through history. One person suggests maybe, and his disciple says, probably, and within a generation or two, they're saying definitely. And now all of a sudden, you've got people in the church who say that Jesus isn't the only way, that Jesus could have sinned, that there were multiple Adams of which maybe one of them was not a sinner. And now all of a sudden, instead of moving forward progressively, thinking, you know, more and more informed theology, in fact, what we're doing is we're revisiting the theology of Pelagius in the 300s, early 400s. And so I think we've got to learn to ask better questions of our opponents. I think probably more often than not in the circles we all run, we're pretty close in agreement. We may nuance the issue a little bit, but I want to know exactly what do you mean when you say, and then we can talk through the implications of either of our beliefs. That's why Jonathan Edwards in his great book, Freedom of the Will, spent 90 pages giving definitions of what he meant when he used the word to make sure that he and his opponents were using the vocab the same way. I think we need to begin there and then figure out what our, quote, opponents really say and give them a chance to explain in their words what they mean, rather than me telling everybody, well, this is what they meant, when very often they wouldn't recognize their own theology in my description. Right. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's something I usually boil down to a lot when it, I'm in a debate or an argument, is asking someone what they mean when they say that word, because usually the definition's not the same. Which is right. you know, unfortunate, but it happens. Yeah, you keep using that word, and I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and you have to do the accent on that one. <laughs> you have to say that. Yeah. No, I, and I think what, what Dr. Beck is referring to is what, what we've called theological triage, which is, um, you know, making the main things the main things and things that are absolutely important. You stand your ground. Things, as they become less important, 
you you worry just to be simple, you worry less about it. Um, but you do that without surrendering what you believe to be true. But the great thing is is to be humble and and to get into the conversation of why someone reads differently. Um, and, and and indeed that I think that's where uh, it's not just you and your Bible. It's not even just you and your Bible and your church. There's a long history of other Christians reading this too. <laughs> and and one of the things that I always preach about Dr. Beck is historical theology, which is his core mission and passion that shows up in all that he does. The modern Christian is not challenged to read much more than Google. Your Bible and Google is not a good way to do good theology. Um, but there's plenty. We have more resources, to my knowledge, than any other generation of Christians ever before. And yet we interact less and less with the ancient resources. Um, and you don't even have to know Latin. There's so many translations in English now. You know, you can you can right. find a whole bunch of these things. And that kind of humility that other people may be right and I may be wrong can create really helpful conversations where we not only think about our conclusions, we think about how we got there. And that becomes important. That's what I think connects to what Dr. Beck was saying about the implications for the next generation. Um, and that's important because the, the Torah itself, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, part of the way that this book is shaped is that you are commanded to take what you know and pass it on to the next generation. You cannot be faithful. You cannot be understanding the text if you're not passing it on to the next generation properly, which is why the very questions he brought up are the essential questions. So let's just say that somebody says 6,000 years and somebody says 60,000 years, and they have, uh, but yet the key doctrines are tied together, and they're both trying to tr trust the text. They just find a little point where they disagree on. Well, you got to move past that, right? Huh. Now, if you got somebody else's whose ideas are going to lead people to think we're not created by God or we're just like the animals, that's different. Why? And this is exactly what Dr. Beck was saying. Is downstream, you, you create all these other conversations and errors. And so saying something, I love that paradigm. He said, Peter, what was it possible? And uh, then for possible to probably and then probably to definitely. I think that's exactly what happens. And you can look at, I, I, would you say 19th century German thought would be a classic example of this that influenced so much? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a real thing. Um, and humility, I think, can help us connect the dots on this. Right. Uh, we've come to the conclusion a few times on this show that pride is really what causes a lot of these issues. The unwillingness to accept that you are wrong or that you might be wrong. <laughs> Uh, because it is important to be steadfast in your own beliefs, but you've got to keep in mind that you might not be right. And you've got to be open to other people's interpretations of your beliefs uh, for at least a discussion. And if you're not willing to have that, then you can't have unity, obviously. But uh, that's just something we've talked about before. Humility is pretty important. Um, fun connection for everyone. Uh, since Dr. Link uh, mentioned Dr. Beck's love of historical theology, um, he was my systematic theology teacher, who is the one who consistently uh, referenced historical theology by Dr. Greg Allison, which is why I got that, which is why we use that so heavily in our podcast and eventually had Greg Allison on the show, who I think, uh, if I'm right, he told us that he was actually Dr. Beck's professor once upon a time, right? Yes, I had him twice, yeah. both times, ironically, for theological anthropology, the doctrine of man. <laughs> I had him at the MDiv and at the PhD level, which might explain why I tell students all the time, and you may remember this, Josh, that there are some things you have to get figured out quickly in your own personal faith journey, 
One is what do you believe about the Bible? But one of them is who is man and what is man created to be? And a lot of that comes from my interactions with Dr. Allison, both in person and in writing. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's ironic because we're about to do another episode with him about his new book of, um, ah, man, I wish I knew the name off the top of my head, but it's about the doctrine of embodiment. Yep. So, and that came out of that class. We talked about those very issues and it's a big issue for him. You know, what does it mean to have a body and how does that interact here? How you treat your body, but also things like eschatology. You know, what happens after we die with the body? Yeah. Well, so we're going full circle, maybe a second time when we have him back on then. Right. Um, Good. Hey, everyone. We just want to take a quick break, let you know all the many ways that you could support the whole church podcast. Hey, on- hey Josh, that's going to take too long. Uh, OK, well, could you list all the ways that you can think of for mm-hmm. them to support us in 10 seconds or less? Yeah. Uh, subscribe to the show wherever you listen. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Support us on Patreon. Our cash app is in the show notes. Subscribe to the newsletter and rate the episode. All right. Yeah, that, that sounds and good share to the episode. I guess we should let them get back to it. Then. Mm-hmm. All right. Y'all enjoy. I wasn't prepared for this question, so um, excuse me not knowing the name of the man, but uh, I believe I read before that uh, D.L. Moody often let a guy open for his sermons who was a Christian evolutionist. Um, And he spoke very highly of the man, but said, yeah, no, that guy was wrong. That's evolution's not right. But he still let the guy open for him. Um, Was D.L. Moody wrong in doing that? Oh, loaded question. Trick question. <laughs> right. I, your question I can delete this if you want. <laughs> well, no, I think, you know, I don't know who you're specifically referring to there, but we could look to the same era because in the 1800s, as Darwin's thoughts come online, initially they're dismissed. Then they begin to interact with them. Eventually they're kind of embraced. I mean, we see that at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1800s. Charles Hodge knows of it early on and says, absolutely cannot be trusted, should not be, you know, assumed. A couple of years later, a couple of generations maybe later, a gentleman named Mikosh becomes the president of Princeton. He openly embraces theistic evolution and then comes along, and this is where I'm going with this ultimately, comes to B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, the great New Testament theologian scholar from Princeton at the end of the 1900s, Moody's era, He's open to the possibility of it. And in fact, some of his writings suggest that maybe he actually had embraced not only the possibility of theistic evolution, but actually that would be a correct way to interpret Genesis. And so whoever this was that Moody was dealing with probably represents what was very much fashionable, quote, informed Christianity at the time. Ironically, Moody's successor there at Moody Church in Chicago, Tory helped write and edit a series of books that we get the word fundamentalist from. They brought together a bunch of leading scholars of conservative Christianity in the early 1900s. Tory was one. Warfield was one. All of them saw other issues of greater importance than the specific question of, can you be a theistic evolutionist and be a Christian? And so my hunch is Tory was probably schooled by Moody, who taught him, that there are certain issues that we need to talk about, but not divide over, and then certain ones that are non-negotiable. And those are the ones we need to make sure that we're all brothers on, at least ideologically speaking. Mm-hmm. 
that's a we're a big fan of that ideology here. <laughs> uh, we use that tier system all the time, which I think you guys actually helped us come up with in episode uh, eleven. So yeah, yeah, we had appreciate uh, that. We had y'all explain it, and we have been using it ever since eighty ep- eighty some episodes later. <laughs> oh man, um. Well, so before we we wrap up, did either of y'all have any other notes that you'd like to leave our listeners with concerning Genesis and just everything we've been talking about? (laughs) Yeah, I want to know what you think about Genesis 1 through 11. Oh, man, that's um, (laughs) – I'm the church unity guy. I can't have answers. I just – you know, I just let other people know. Um, I I also want to know sometimes, you know, I know that's uh, not the best answer. Um, I believe that all of God's worth, word is truth. Uh, I believe it happened like you said it happened. I just have a really hard time as far as like age and all this other questions that people bring up. And I'm like, you know, and this is the church unity answer. I want to get to, well, why did God care to have this story given to us? And what is its impact on our lives now you know realistically as cool as the debates are and as usually if you take one side if you say old earth i'll be a young earth and if you say young earth i'll be an old earth because that's just the nature of who i am um but at the end of it i really don't think if the earth is 10 billion years old that impacts my life today as any more than if it's six thousand years old you know like my life is pretty much the same either way but see the key question is whether or not you think the text is true so that word Bereshit that we talked about having three possible meanings, when it references time, it does not refer to a point in time. You can see that in Jeremiah. It refers refers to a period of time, which is why I'm telling you, I don't know in Genesis 1-1 anything more than what Moses tells me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's most important is it creates a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation and starts a wondering of whether or not God's life can actually show up in this creation. And then Genesis 1, 2 to 2, 4 begin to show you how that works. And it's by his word and by his spirit. Now, what's interesting is we've talked about many different views. If you will ground yourself in in the text itself, you will see uh, what is claimed and what is not claimed. Uh, for example, one of the issues you may have is, Genesis one fourteen, right? Is that something that plagues you, Joshua? With the sun, the moon, and the stars, and yet there's light <laughs> yeah, where, on fire? where he creates light once, and then he creates right. the sun later. You're like, yeah. That's... So I will, I will build off of the paradigm. Now, this is not Doctor Beck's paradigm. I didn't come up with it either. It came out of Doctor Selheimer's book that I referenced one before, once before, which is Genesis Unbound. He was an old Earth guy. I was a young Earth guy, but I call myself a soft young Earth guy because I don't think the question is answered. So here's the key. As a young earth guy, when I go through, I should say, what's happening on those six literal days? There's no doubt there's six 24-hour days. The text emphasizes that. But there's a transition from the verb bara, which was to create everything in Genesis 1-1, that will show up again in, in verses 21 and 26 and 27 when we have the creation of man. But the rest of the time, God is not creating. He's not baraing. He's assigned. So Genesis 1-2 to 2-4 is the preparation in Selhammer's model, which I think is a good model, is a preparation of the promised land um, so that man and God can live together. Because that word for land will be very critical in the rest of the Torah. This is what the Abrahamic covenant will talk about. At the end of the Torah, we're waiting for somebody to bring us to the land. Same word. And, mm-hmm. and, and so 
this is what I meant earlier about you you have to say, I'm going to trust the text. And then you have to begin reading the text carefully and make sure that your reading has not made something uh, major that should be minor and vice versa and so forth. Um, there's the things that show up, for example, when you read Genesis 2, why does he talk about those four rivers out of the blue? <laughs> why does he do that? Well, he inserts that in there. It's, a, it's an intentional interruption of the text. But those rivers become paradigms for understanding the promised land later. What the what the author Moses is doing, he says, when you think about this creation account, you think about the promised land, which is why the rivers are made, two of which you can't find on a map, two of which you can. But the ones he described in particular, you can't find those on a map. Where can you find them? You see those exact terms showing up, not only in the promised land, but when you get to Mount Sinai. So you have a book that if your only task is to win an argument about how old the earth is, you can win that battle and you can lose the war of trying to let God shape you um, through the scriptures. Now, I'm going to tell you that those the grammar is going to say those need to be six 24-hour days. The question is what's happening on those days. So in Genesis 1-1, you have the creation, the braing of everything. And then you have in the six days, the special creation of some of the animals and but most are the creation of some of the animals, but the special creation, how that term gets utilized three times in one verse to talk about humanity, because the crown of creation is humanity. So when you get and you try to figure out, I've seen all this creation count, what's the most important thing? Well, there's a pattern all through the Torah. It's a pattern that comes from Dr. Selhammer again, just I'm regurgitating him, but I'm footnoting because right now in Southern Baptist life, I've got to mention everybody I quote. So here we go. Um, there's a pattern of a narrative occurring, and then a poem is thrust in, and there's an epilogue, and then another narrative. The poem interprets the preceding narrative. And so when you read the creation account, what's the most important thing? Well, look at Genesis 2, uh, uh, verse, verse 23. There's your poem. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. For this one will be called woman, for for man this one was taken. So if that pattern, you can pull it out across the rest of the Pentateuch, and you can, then you see that the author is not trying to have you emphasize the questions you have about the sun and the stars, no matter how you resolve that. He says the most important part of creation is humanity, but not just humanity, man and woman. And suddenly the doctrine of marriage is linked to the doctrine of creation and recreation uh, that we've talked about before. So that's how you begin to do a triage of that's consistent with what the author is trying to get you to do. But notice, you got to read a lot. You got to read in big pictures. You got to read other historians and theologians, um, as historical theologians and theologians across time. And then you've got to, you know, you got to look and, and just see, well, what's the main thing? Because who's he talking to in the next verse? Therefore, a man will forsake his father and his mother. Who's the only one who didn't have to do that? Adam. Adam. This is, he's, he's instructing us. And so the doctrine of marriage emerges as, one of the uh, one of the ways that God is made visible in the creation, two institutions, right? Marriage and the church, where God is made most visible in the creation. That's where we need to put an emphasis upon. Because if we surrender those doctrines, if we, if we surrender the idea of, of how God relates to his creation, uh, we lose the gospel. Mm. And of course, in our current cultural moment, the discussion of sex and marriage is... Um, is all over the place. Yeah. And if you're grounded in this text and you suddenly realize that pattern and you decide it's important, which which I would suggest, 
then you, you, you have to come back and say, well, right now there's at least four different views of marriage in our world. One man and one woman, two men, two women, or sorry, one or two women, two men, or one man with a lot of women, right? So the traditional marriage of man and woman emphasizes some very important things that will begin to connect to the rest of the Bible. And that's how you can emphasize that. And so when you come in, what I do is I, my students in my, one of my first lectures in my Old Testament survey class, I have those four circles with those four views of marriage. And I show the man and the woman. And I say, hey, listen, you know what this tells you? You may not want to be in the circle of marriage, one man to one woman, but you can look at that circle and you can say, hey, there's a role for me. There's a part for me. And life can come from that. And, and notice that you are actually connected to those who are radically different. There's nothing in the creation more radically different than man and woman, and yet together they make life, right? Mm. When you put two men together, not only does life not flow, but, but let's ask this. What's the value of women if two men marry? Same thing if you have two women marry. What's the value of men? Does life naturally flow? No. So the later generations are affected, right? And of course, if you have one man marrying a whole bunch of women, are men and women equal now? So suddenly this idea that's so critical in the creation account grounds us in the idea that it's a civil rights issue, that the only view of marriage that creates every man and woman as unique and valuable and creates life where you can pursue after enemies, that's marriage of one man to one woman. And this is why I'm going to argue over and over that the church in the end, this doctrine has to be elevated. Not because we're caught in a cultural moment, but because it's it's flowing directly from the text. So the mm-hmm. if you believe that Christ that the church is the bride of Christ, you can't surrender this. Mm-hmm. And I think Moses would say, Don't surrender it. So what I tried to do there was model for you how you can you can approach these texts with your honest questions, keep reading and keep thinking about the larger patterns, and then try to prioritize what's most important to the author. And that's going to unveil for you the real hope you can find. Wow. Man. And uh, I think that that sort of ties in that little side note earlier about the doctrine of man. So now we're we're back to that and the importance of uh, – yeah. Yeah. All, all, all I'm basically going to say is that uh, Dr. Link is right. So let me just say Dr. <laughs> Link is right. Um, <laughs> Oh, man. And honestly, I have so many more questions and we could keep going because realistically doing an episode about Genesis 1 through 11 is like trying to cram all of Star Wars into a 30 minute episode and that doesn't work. So just letting you guys know, Genesis 1 through 11 should absolutely be a sermon series and not a one hour episode. So (laughs) you got what you got. Um, (laughs) I think we did really good. And if you're like me, you have more questions and there are places to find answers. So right. hopefully um, if you guys go to our reading list, you'll have some books in there that you guys can see. And um, if Dr. Beck or Dr. Link have any books they want to suggest, uh, I know Dr. Link mentioned one during this. We'll go ahead and add those in there as well. Um, yeah. So that being said, uh, you guys know we like to, the last question we like to ask our guests is just, if you got to give a single practical action, something that when this episode ends, the people listening can just go do whatever you said. Um, so just something doable um, that would help maintain Christian unity. What would it be? I think it's easy. Well, I, we can I, we can cop out here and point back something TJ <laughs> said 25, 30 minutes ago. The key here is humility. 
We live in a day and age where everyone thinks they have the only right answer. And so many people now are no longer teachable. And if you aren't willing to listen to my point of view, believing that maybe I'm right, we can never have a legitimate conversation. Evangelism won't take place. And the church will split over these theological triage issues that are secondary or tertiary. We've got to humble ourselves and realize that there's one God, that there's one Messiah, and there's one spirit. And the rest of us are dependent on them and not vice versa. Hmm. Hmm. Dr. Link, did you have uh, any other suggestions or did you want to add to that? Yeah. So when you read the Bible, trust the Bible and pursue the question of the lesson or message. And part of doing that is uh, not only reading more of the Bible, not only uh, in larger chunks and perhaps more intensely than before, not only doing that prayerfully, but intentionally finding out those who read differently than you and asking them why and not being threatened or insecure about that conversation. A lot of genuine conflict emerges when we are insecure that because we could have it wrong, I mean, there, there's, there's going to be this terrible thing. But if you know the one whom you have believed, I can almost sing that, except I won't sing one. <laughs> if you know the one in whom you have believed, then you can prayerfully come and sit down, especially with a fellow believer, and say, look, I know I know you're Presbyterian and I'm Baptist. Let's talk about this, and I want to know what you're thinking. So instead of trying to win the argument, instead of trying to prove your point, try to understand the rationale behind that point. What that will do is that will give you a way to go back and say, does that explain the text better than my view? Or does my view explain the text better? And really good hermeneutics emerges through all of those. So hermeneutics is the art and science of learning to study the Bible, read the Bible, understand the Bible, interpret the Bible. It emerges in conversation. And uh, I, I, when I teach hermeneutics, that's part of what I'm asking students to do. Um, have a greater conversation with the text. Have a greater conversation with theology have a greater conversation with others. And when it's done, focus yourself on what is the main message or the lesson from the author to the reader. And application will flow out of that, but it will flow out of it after you've spent time soaked in the narrative world. All right. Uh, what do you think we would see change in the church if everyone started doing that? Uh, they'd sleep less. <laughs> That's true. They would sleep less. Um, that's a great question. I, I hope what would emerge is the humility that we've been talking about. Because the, I, sometimes I have to remind my kids, because my five kids, I teach them the Bible, uh, every meal I'm with them, basically. And, uh, I had to remind them of that, you know, your dad doesn't know all the answers. And as you're getting older, they're asking better and better questions. Uh, my 10 year old asks the toughest questions right now. And it's sometimes they just say, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know that that's answered, but. But being okay with the fact that I don't know, but yet I still know who God is, who he wants me to be, and how I can walk, that that's where the church can actually make the main thing the main thing. And, and just being patient uh, can perhaps let that happen. And I think there could be um, a greater witness to the, to the wider world uh, through that. Uh, what about you, Dr. Beck? How do you think the world would change if we all followed your advice? Well, I, th I think the key would be, of course, you know, God's the one who changes, changes the world, changes us. But 
I think if we would do that, if we'd humble and then add to that what Dr. Link is suggesting that, you know, God is, according to John 4.32, seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, we're to be a people of the word, that spiritual ignorance is not bliss. It's stupid that we're actually called to grow in grace and admonition of the Lord and that we're to have the mind of Christ and we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind and strength. If we do what we're talking about here, the key is we become more like Jesus. And that's the goal of the whole thing anyway. That's right. That's right. Awesome. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to move on to the last segment of our show before we get into the actual outro. And that is the God moment segment, which I'm pretty sure you both did the first time you were on. I know you did in episode 50. I'm pretty sure you made everyone do one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know how it goes. If you're new here, our God moment segment is just a segment where we talk about something God has done in our lives recently, whether it be a challenge or a blessing or a moment of worship, anything like that. And I like to make Josh go first. Uh, it's yeah. it's a comfort trait at this point. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of having time to think about my answer for this, I typically go through my week, and when things happen, I go, oh, that's it, that's it. TJ makes it always be on my mind because of how uncomfortable it is when I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> uh, so that being said, uh, this week, um, a guy I used to work with, and I, I am going to use his name, so uh, Ricky Duncan, thank you for this. Um he saw me pulling onto the road where my house is at and decided to pull around the other way so that he could just swing by and say hi. And I haven't seen him since we worked together. And it was just a huge blessing to get to see him and hear his voice and just kind of hear from him and see how he was doing. So that's going to be mine. Awesome. Uh, I'll go next. Give you guys plenty of time. Uh, my God moment for this week. Uh, it's not going to be about hockey. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it easily could be, it often is. <laughs> but uh, but it's not. Uh, I just recently started working at uh, my new job, which is still Chipotle, but it's a different one uh, with a lot more hours and it's going pretty great. Uh, so things are going nice. Got to be thankful for the little things. So, uh, Dr. Beck, what, what do you have a go moment for us? More of a God moments, and this is not to stroke the ego of Josh particularly because he doesn't need this help. But, you know, I was out of town recently to do a wedding for two former students who asked me to do their premarital counseling and their wedding. And we were out to lunch and we ran into other students who we didn't know lived in the area who just happened to be in the same restaurant we were. Then we ran into a former colleague that night getting ice cream. And then just this past Sunday, two other current students asked me to do their wedding. And so I think the blessing that I'd want to point out is just the reminder of how great of an influence we have on folks that we don't realize we are and that God occasionally brings them back into our lives to encourage us to keep going because what we're doing really does matter, even though most days it feels like it really doesn't. And so I'm always appreciative, not only for guys like Josh and you who are taking what we've taught you and going where somewhere with it, but just a reminder that, you know, I'm throwing a very small pebble into the pond right. and the ripples or a God thing. And he just lets me be part of something bigger than me. All right. Dr. Link, do you have a God moment for us? Well, that sense of calling that Dr. Beck talked about, I mean, that is, that is something that I think all of us teach enjoy. But, but this week, actually my, my God moment was my youngest child is five and rather full of herself, a very uh, outgoing uh, child to say the least. Um, I do a Bible time with all the kids, but I also have to do one that's 
um, that is targeted specifically to a five-year-old and not just a 15 and 16 and 17-year-old. Uh, so um, we were we were going through, and she just had a burning question. And her burning question was, how did God become baby? And so I've been praying for many, many years for her to begin to have theological thoughts. Um, and that question was not only a reminder of my calling and joy in that, but that God really is at work, even when you don't see it. A little bit of word, a little bit of word, a little bit of word. And guess what? The spirit does work through the word. That's where life is. And so that was this week. That was probably the, the highlight. Um, she also started swimming today, I hear, but that's not quite as exciting. Uh. Yeah. It probably won't ever have you know, to swim. Those of us who grew up in the church, you know, that sounds like a pretty simple question, but I, I'd like to point out that's actually just a fantastic question. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, but she was listening a little bit, so that's good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you both for that and for your time today as we get into the outro. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with someone, share it with a friend, share it with an enemy. Uh, spam the link on social media pages uh, maybe not that one that sounds a little irritating uh, but <laughs> thank you for your time today and uh, join us next week we'll do it again yeah um so uh dr beck dr link um you know, <laughs> where, where can people go to find more of your ministry um hear you guys preach at your church if y'all have a website anything like that um mine's yeah. easy if you go to doorwaybc.com that's the church website. There's a link there to Sermon Cloud where we post our audio. Or if you go to YouTube and do you look for our YouTube channel for Doorway Baptist Church, you get our Sunday morning services. Since the beginning of the COVID shutdown last year, we've been doing four or five 10-minute devotionettes every day of the week, work week. And all my Wednesday night Bible studies. We're going through the book of Exodus right now. We're in chapter 22 after a year and a month or so. So, you know. <laughs> There's a lot out there for better or worse. If you want proof of what I do, I've been recording it and posting it for God and everybody to see. Yeah. It's exciting. Isn't My pastor has been doing Ephesians for two and a half years. I think he's about to finish. <laughs> that something. sounds great. So, um, I right now am not pastoring any church, so there's no public place you can go, but you can enroll in Charleston Southern university <laughs> and come and let me uh, wax not so elegantly, but wax nonetheless about uh, what are what are what is my calling, which is I want people to know that Moses and the prophets wrote to you, and they wrote to you about Jesus, and that's what I am for. Wow, yeah, and um, don't miss that opportunity if you guys can get that opportunity. I um I, I was able to sit under both of them as my professor, and I often miss it, and I should have done better in school so that I could have kept doing it. <laughs> so you guys do better than me. <laughs> In fact, I'm getting ready to teach on Genesis this fall. Hmm, you, you know, actually, you reminded me during this uh, when you were talking about uh, the marriage stuff. Yeah. I, I've had in my head where I've heard a lesson at CSU about um, gender roles from Genesis 1, and I could not figure out who it was that I heard it from, and uh, now I know. <laughs> it was Dr. Link that I heard that from, so it's good to know. Right. So some future guests for the podcast, we've got uh, Dr. John Soden, co-author of In the Beginning, What We Misunderstood. Uh, best-selling author Frank Viola will be joining us to talk about his new book, Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. Uh, Christian Ashley will be joining the podcast, or guest 
starring on the podcast, uh, creative writer she is. And uh, at the end of the season, of course, we will have Francis Chan. Yeah, he doesn't know though. That's that's the only one who doesn't know. Right. <laughs> when Francis Chan is on the show, season one ends. Yeah, so we'll figure it out. Thank you all so much for your time, and come back next week. We would love to have you back.